yesterday belatedly, and now Day of Atonement belatedly. I told my wife I was going to go into <laughs> the meaning of the Day of Atonement today, and she said, that's great, just as long as we don't have to fast. <laughs> Maybe there's a point there. The Day of Atonement over the years left some unsatisfied areas in my thinking in terms of the meaning of it, the types that are involved. We uh, traditionally just mentioned that atonement was becoming at one with God, and certainly that is a very important point, <clears throat> but I think we <laughs> missed some of the great meaning because we left out the part about the marriage of the Lamb. But I did give a sermon, I think it was last atonement or the one before, in showing that the Day of Atonement pictures the wedding of Christ and his bride. There's where the atonement really comes together and has deep meaning. Because when a couple is married, <clears throat> they do not become at one until the time of the marriage. And we do not become at one with Christ completely until the time that we are resurrected and changed and then married to him. It is at the marriage that we totally become at one with Christ. The change comes, <clears throat> the dropping away, as we said yesterday, of our vulnerability due to being corruptible in so many, many ways, and then we become incorruptible. And that which is mortal, fleshly, able to die, becomes <clears throat> immortal, or unable to die. So that change has to occur before we can marry Christ. Because kind begets kind, kind marries kind, mates with kind, and Christ is not going to marry anyone of lesser value or a different kind or type than he is. And we are a different kind today, as we saw very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. He is incorruptible and immortal, and we are still corruptible and mortal. So something has to change. And I think that we saw some hope in that, in that no matter how we struggle, we cannot achieve what we would like to achieve. And yet under these conditions, he uses this time period to see how we do if we grow, if we overcome change and become more like him <clears throat> under these conditions, then he has confidence that we would never ever rebel against him throughout all eternity. So this is a trial period. It's, and a trial means a situation in which you are under great pressure, distress, duress, and you overcome that to win. And that's what we're put here to do, is to win. So that he is confident in changing us and then marrying us. So atonement, yes, becomes, means becoming at one with Christ. But marriage is the closest atonement that we understand, and it was given to us as a type and a figure, as we saw in Ephesians 5, of the marriage of Christ and the church. So all the way through, the holy days carry the type of marriage. And we miss that somewhat, breaking it down to individual things and seeing the 
plan of salvation, but missing very much the meaning. So, yes, we were right in saying it means at one mint, and fasting helps us draw closer because it removes pride, vanity, ego, <clears throat> and humbles us in fasting. And that is one of the primary reasons for fasting. Let's start today in exploring this viewpoint of the Day of Atonement, picturing the marriage of the Lamb to his bride in Matthew 21, or 22. And Emmanuel answered and spoke to them again by parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son. So he tells us right here that the analogy of the kingdom of God is about marriage. Now, there are many, many parables of the kingdom of God, and he uses other analogies, but this is a recurring theme throughout the Bible. So the king wanted his son married, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Many are called, few are chosen, and they would not come. Now, there have been a lot of people in this end time, Church of God, who have been bidden or invited, given the opportunity to come. And for various reasons, they have other things to do. It's like when Christ called his disciples and called others. The one man said, well, let me go bury my father. And Christ said, let the dead bury the dead. Don't worry about it. Come and follow me. <clears throat> People have fallen into many categories. We could use the parable of the sower here and the bad ground, the good ground, the thorns, the thistles, and so on. Uh, things that just eat people up, that keep them from coming. Whatever their interests in this world are, that kept them from focusing on the spiritual, on the things of God. Now, this sounds like just a parable, but it's applicable to everyday life for us, is it not? It is so easy to get wrapped up in the things of this world that we, not intentionally, I guess, but inadvertently, to some degree, get sidetracked and neglect the thing which is the most important to us. How do human beings do that? Procrastination is one word that fits. Well, we're going to get around to that around to it, you know the story. But other things keep crowding in and getting in the way. And anything that's difficult, we tend to like to put off. Our A, B, C, D list, we like to attack the Ds first because they're easier. The top, the things at the top of the list that require planning and hard work and a great deal of effort, we tend to put off as human beings. And a, a late great deal of effort needs to go into spiritual life, and yet it's so easy to put it off and deal with lesser things. So they were bidden, but would not come, for whatever reasons. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, didn't he send Abraham? Didn't he send the prophets? Didn't he send Peter, James, John, Christ himself? Didn't he send an end-time man to call us, to lead us, bid us to the wedding. And they 
wouldn't come. Even, you know, been a veritable wave of servants sent to bid. I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatling are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. Everything's prepared. Now, this is getting close to being a fulfillment here. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. See, just the daily things going on. Oh, wait, maybe it's not quite time. Uh, who are you, doomsdayer, saying that it's near? There's some people now in the Church of God that think it's maybe even hundreds of years away. And the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. They've always stoned the prophets, haven't they? And anyone who comes with a strong message, a message of repentance, is not generally liked. But when the king heard thereof, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, is Christ going to, at some point, wreak vengeance upon this world and those who have denied those whom he has sent? Yes, he is. Vengeance is his. It's not ours, it's his. And he will take it. He is not mocked, as he says. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. So another problem crops up. You see, <clears throat> the world will not listen. And we are at the time, almost, when God is going to begin to send all kinds of plagues and troubles upon the world, just as it says here. So this is a very much end-time parable that he's telling. And the time is going to come when it is ready, it is time. But they were not worthy, verse 8. Go you therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find bid to the marriage. There's another scripture that calls, talks about some being called at the eleventh hour. Uh, right at the end, there will, will not be quite enough to qualify, apparently. So God is going to look around and find some others. It doesn't take long, under strong duress, to make changes in attitude to get ready, if you really want to get ready. Those who dawdled didn't get ready with lots of time, so there'll be a few at the end who get ready in a short time. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. Didn't matter how good you were, how bad you were. And the wedding was furnished with guests. I won't go into it, but the guests here really are the candidates to be bride, those who have been called. We're invited as guests, and then we are later chosen as bride if we qualify. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. What, are the, what is a wedding garment? Fine linen of righteousness. The garments are our deeds, our lives. And he said to him, Friend, why did you even come here not having a wedding garment? And he didn't have an answer. He was speechless. Well, here you are at the wedding and you're near Levi's. Uh, that doesn't get it. You're dirty Levi's. 
Not that there's anything wrong with Levi's, but not the white garments of righteousness at that point. It's, it's the appropriate thing at the marriage. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So well, that tells you right there that this calling as a guest uh, turns into an invitation to be a bride if you're chosen as such. So this is a serious business, this marriage thing. Let's go to Luke 14. Now you'll recall at this moment that we talked quite a bit in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 about the marriage covenant and what the attitude of those who accept that covenant should be in the first three to nine verses of Matthew 5, about the poverty in spirit, the, the meekness, the humility, the lack of vanity and ego that is involved. So here's another story about the wedding that echoes what Christ said there in Matthew 5, Luke 14, verse 7. <laughs> and he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked out how they chose out the chief rooms, saying to them, When you are bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than you be bidden of him. And he that bade you uh, and him come and say to you, Give this man place, and you begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when you are bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then shall you have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with you. For whoso exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So the first part of the covenant was to get the attitude right. If we're bidden to the wedding of the Lamb, we're not to have the attitude of, you know, I'm one of the more righteous, I should sit right beside the bridegroom. No, take the lowest seat in the house, and if you need promoted by those who are in charge and view all those things, then that will be taken care of. But it is really embarrassing to sit in the front row and be asked to go out sitting back, isn't it? Better to be humble, better to be meek. Remember David saying, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your kingdom than miss out? He will be king of all Israel, but his attitude was, let me just open the door for those who are important. So, as much ability, as much capacity as David had, as much as he had sought God and made his mistakes as well, and yet being king of Israel, he had a humble attitude and said, let me just take the doorkeeping job. That's what this is saying. It's all about attitude. Luke 12. Let's go to verse 34. <clears throat> For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's some echo of the wedding ceremony, or, or uh, the covenant, Matthew 5, 6, 7, repeated here in Luke, which is what we just read part of. But he puts something here a little different. 
Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning were to be the light of the world. And you yourselves, like two men that wait for their Lord, when he will return for the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. We are to be as ready as possible, as alert, as awake as we can be. We don't know when he's returning. He's been on a long journey, and it's hard to predict your ETA sometimes because you don't know what things will come up on the road or what will break down or all kinds of things on a long journey. So you just don't know exactly. So he says, be ready at all times for his return, to be ready for the wedding. I'm going through these because it shows how often he refers to Christ coming back and accepting his bride as being a symbol of the kingdom of God. And we talked yesterday about the actual return, and today we will lead into the events that occur at that time. Now that reminds me of the Song of Songs. Uh, I think we'll turn back there, chapter 5 of the Song of Songs. Here you have a book which typifies marriage, and we could go through all of the Song of Songs and draw the analogy between Christ and the church here because it is very strong in the Song of Songs. But in the light of the verses we're just reading in Luke, I want to pick up just a part of this because the wife, the bride, has a dream. Chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, I sleep, but my heart is awake. I'm aware. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with you and my locks with the drops of the night. I've been out at night. I've been traveling. I've been coming to see you. And I have the dew from the night on me. I'm anxious to see you. And she's dreaming about her beloved who is coming to see her. But in a dream, this is not real, but it's a dream. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand in the hole of the door, and my bowels, my emotions were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-swelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn and was gone. We've all experienced that in dreams, haven't we? You're trying to do something, and you can't quite get it done. It's so frustrating to be dreaming of something you desire, something you want, something that's important to you, and yet you can't quite get there, can't make it happen. That's the feeling that this woman was having. She says, in my mind, I got up, I came to the door, and finally got it open, but he was gone. Too late. My soul failed when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. It was too late. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Oh, you're dressed like a bride. You don't have a husband around. Lift her veil off. 
This is speaking of the tribulation. We're supposed to be ready. We're supposed to be prepared. We're supposed to go to a place of safety and wait for our groom to come. And then, for some, it'll be like a dream, like a trance, like a nightmare. They were not allowed to be safely put away in a safe place, in a bed, waiting, but they'll be out on the street. Woke up, got the door open, too late. Went to find him, he wasn't there. And those in the tribulation who would kill the bride of Christ, if at all possible, then seek to destroy her. They wounded her. The keepers of the walls took away my veil. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I'm lovesick. I want him. I want to be with him. But here I find myself out on the street, being buffeted about. There's a warning there. It fits in with the story of the ten virgins. Uh, I wanted to go to that one. Let's see. That's in Matthew 25, I believe. Because it's a very similar story. <clears throat> Here again, we have the marriage uh, of the Lamb as the center of the discussion. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. In the Song of Songs story, she was in bed waiting, uh, thought she was ready, and then, because of the dream state, could not seem to get up. Five were wise, five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. The Holy Spirit, I think, is designated here, the oil, the power of God. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, the oil is an activating force, is it not, in a lamp? It's what ignites, it's what burns, it's what gives light. So, they did not have the wherewithal, the fire in them, to accomplish what they needed to accomplish. They had neglected being filled with the Spirit and the Word of God and the activation that it gives you. <clears throat> Go to meet the bridegroom. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are going out. Can't do that. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. I think, again, we have a type of the tribulation here, and the only place that the oil of God will be available will be through the ministry of the two witnesses. They will be the only ones preaching the truth and having the holy oil of God to pour out. Read Zechariah 4, and it talks about them pouring oil into all seven of the churches there. Their first job is to the church, secondarily a message to the world. We missed that in the past, but I think it's very clear here that there are those who will have it but they will be rejected of the world, and it will be hard to find. Too late. You're already in the tribulation. Now what are you going to do? 
And while they went to buy, they went to find. Too late, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. So what it's saying here in this verse, and I want to concentrate on verse 10, is that he comes, and the next event mentioned here in sequence is the marriage. So in the holy days, Feast of Trumpets represents when the bridegroom comes. The next event to come up then is the marriage of the Lamb. Which holy day comes up next? Atonement, shortly after the Feast of Trumpets. Because a marriage takes place. Then came the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I know you not. Now this goes back to what we've been reading already, end of chapter 24, in fact, about how we treat each other, those around us, and how our judgment will be based entirely upon that. He will adjudge how we treat each other as exactly how we treat him and think of him. And here he echoes that, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. So he's tying the return and the wedding together here in this story as he has in the others to begin to give us a picture. <clears throat> Now let's go back to Leviticus 16 before we continue and pick up some of the story that we commonly go to on the Day of Atonement. Here I want uh, Leviticus 16. Now you'll probably recall the story here. I won't go through the whole thing for sake of time because uh, I have a lot to get through. But this is where Aaron had to have his, as the high priest, had to be cleansed, had to put on all his clean garments after having been cleansed. He had to pre pre present the uh, sin offerings for himself and for his house in verse 6. And there's two goats involved that are taken. Verse 7, And he shall take the two goats and present them before the eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So these two goats were not to be dealt with out in the crowd somewhere, but brought before the door of the congregation. So there's something about these two goats that is important to the whole congregation. And we're part of the congregation way downstream from this, but the meaning is still here. <clears throat> and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the eternal, so one of these goats is for God and the other for a scapegoat or an Azazel, or one who went out himself, or, to put in modern language, one who was for and of himself. Now, some have said both these goats represent Christ, and I think that that is an impossibility. I think Herbert Armstrong had it right. Uh, Christ never went out anywhere for himself. He was always selfless before, 
his come his tenure on the earth during it and after it. But this is a goat that was self indulgent. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. Is that not what Christ was offered for? Was a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the Azazel shall be presented alive before the Eternal to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for an Azazel into the wilderness. He did his own thing. He's going to send him out to do his own thing. But he will be limited severely because he will be chained in darkness. Now let's go on down. Verse 15, it talks about the bullock and the other offerings here. I've been through it in more detail before, but I want to hit the highlights today. Verse 15, then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil. Clear representation of Christ. And do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place. An atonement means coming at one, or to become one. It means removing that which would destroy or defile, to cleanse and make an atonement for. So if it's made as an offering, there's an atonement there. Why? because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins, and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So a final cleansing has to be done before the bride can marry the groom. She has to be perfect and pure and white. So this, sin, this goat represents Christ who removes her sin through the blood. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. So this is a worldwide, if you will, atonement that is made. Let's go to 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and he shall send him away by the hand of a timely, or a fit man, qualified man, into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities, unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness, uninhabited, solitary, alone. Now, the idea that this could represent Christ comes from the fact that the sin was placed on his head. Now, the first goat was killed because only death can remove sin. This one had the sins pronounced over him but he is not killed, which would remove sin. So that doesn't help us, does it? What is being placed on this goat is the blame. Not the washing away of sin, but the causal factor or the blame for the sin. 
Go back to the Garden of Eden. Where was, what was the causal factor involved with Adam and Eve? It was a serpent who came and said, Hey, honey, this looks good. Try it. He caused, seduced, worked on her emotions and Adam's for that matter until they gave in and did what God had said don't do. Now, they died for their sin, right? Satan didn't. But he is certainly to blame or has a very high level of culpability in what they did. And with you and me, we are carnal and natural and rebellious against God, but that is not necessarily our only problem. Because Satan is there constantly with the things he's created in the culture and the society to tempt us to do wrong. Now, God tempts no man, but Satan tempts every man and tempted Christ himself. <clears throat> so he is always there trying to get us to go the wrong way. And that is why the guilt is put on him. He isn't killed. He'll bear those iniquities in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on and when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there and then wash and all that. Now, this is tied together with the Day of Atonement. Verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever to you that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. This is a very solemn day. No work, not even the preparation of food, not even so much as eating or drinking. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. Now, we find in the New Testament that they were also still keeping the fast or the Day of Atonement after Christ had died, so it was still in effect. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. Here you have something look for, looking forward to all the New Testament scriptures about the fine linen, the holy garments, the righteousness of saints. So even in the Old Testament, the symbolism should become very clear to us that atonement is tied in with the holy garments of the wedding and that all sin has to be removed. And he who caused that sin also is sent away and bound. Remember Revelation 20, where Satan is bound a thousand years and is not able to influence anybody, the bride, those people living in the millennium. So the symbolism here of sending him out into the wilderness on his own, by himself, certainly ties in with Revelation 20. We might also, I'll quickly turn to this one, uh, Revelation 12, 
because the timing is important to understand. Chapter 12 of Revelation opens with the bride trying to produce Christ, trying to bring forth in her life those qualities of Christ, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered, delivered of the man-child. In other words, she gives birth to Christ in her life. There are many scriptures who that tie that together. Verse 6, she fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God, and she would be fed for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Now I've recounted how Christ is, I mean Christ, where Satan is before the throne of God in Christ, on a daily basis, right now, accusing you and me of our sins. Well, at the time that we go to a place of safety, or the church does, there will be a war and he will be cast down and he will never more be allowed back there. See how that fits Leviticus 16? Sent into the wilderness. Not there to accuse anymore. Three and a half years later, the church meets Christ in the air and she becomes beyond being tempted anymore. There would be no reason for him to go there anymore. But he also has to stay bound lest he affect those people who have lived through into the millennium and are setting up the kingdom of God. That great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives to death. Now that ties in again <clears throat> with the story we've already read. The accuser is gone. The one who tempted, who had those sins put upon him as blame, sent away. And when he's cast down, he's angry, verse 17, with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. So some are taken to safety, having been accounted worthy. Others are left behind, and those are the ones that he goes after. Song of Songs, there again. She had this dream that she wanted to be with her husband, and she couldn't get the job done. And then there they were, smiting her back and forth, tearing her veil off, what parts of the wedding garment she had on, not having been completely dressed and ready, are being stripped from her. That ties in beautifully with this. They make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Emmanuel the Christ. So it is church people, those who have the commandments of God, and which actually keep them, but they were not ready and are left behind. Some of them do repent. Zechariah about 12, is it? 11 or 12, says that about a 
a third of them will repent during this period of time of great stress, and maybe will be a part of the bride after all, but not before going through being buffeted about, the veil being torn, and so on and so forth. So the sins have to be forgiven. Let's go to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. And here, uh, verse 30... Well, I'll turn too far. 30. Oh, I'm, I'm with the word. Proverbs 30, verse 23. <clears throat> Three things, verse 21, the earth is, dis is disquieted, and four which it cannot bear. For a servant when he reigns, and a fool when he is filled with meat. For an odious woman when she is married. A woman who does not find favor with her husband is an odor to him, a bad scent in other words. He can't stand her. Now that's not a way to be married. It's a very difficult situation when you have even a mate that loves more than the other does, for instance. But if you have a situation where, let's say the bride in this case, is despised of her husband, it doesn't make for a very good relationship. Now, God despises sin. He hates sin. He does not want to live with sin. Sinners and sin will not be allowed in the new heavens and the new earth, as Revelation 21 and 22 clearly point out. Now, he is love. He defines it. He is it. And he wants his bride to be the same as him. So he wants a lovable bride, one without sin. Now, atonement is all about completely doing away with sin so that no more remains, and it makes her acceptable. So that when she stands to marry Christ, she is perfectly clean, white, pure, and sinless. That's the kind of bride he's after. Now, we saw yesterday that none of us would ever measure up, and we would probably get in one last last-minute sin, and <laughs> one last one-second sin if we could. We're just not there. But a change has to come. And then a final forgiveness, which is pictured by the Day of Atonement, just before the marriage takes place, so that she is perfectly clean and pure as she stands there and is not despised, is not odious to him, but it's a sweet-smelling scent of love. That's the bride that will stand before him that day. Second Corinthians 11, I quoted this the other day. I want to turn there today because it fits so well here. Second Corinthians 11. Now, understand again that the Corinthian church was as morally lax and as sinful as any people on earth. He says, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. Paul said, I recognize I have my own problems, 
So bear with me. I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now they had had lives of all kinds of sin and perversion. You read about Corinth, and it's a pretty sickening story. But they had repented. They had changed. They had accepted Christ's sacrifice, been baptized, and were working toward becoming the virgin bride that Christ wants. So Paul said, that's how I want to present you to him. The kind of woman he's looking for. Whatever had happened in this physical life could be forgiven and wiped away as though it had never, ever happened. Now, that's got to be encouraging for certainly most of us, that all our past sins can be washed away, gone, not there. The analogy, again, is Ezekiel 16, where Christ took this young lady who was in sin, sickening, and cleaned her up, washed her, purified her, and then adorned her as his bride. But he's doing the same thing with us spiritually that he did with ancient Israel physically. And that analogy in Ezekiel 16 fits in perfectly here. Why is atonement the most holy, if you would say that, that and the Passover itself? Because both have to do with him forgiving our sins, Christ. Both at Passover, initially our physical lives, and that being washed away, and then trying to walk in newness of life. But even that is a mixed bag, because as human beings, in spite of accepting the marriage covenant, we still make mistakes, we still sin, we still have faults. So a final atonement has to be made. And in some respects, I would put this as a more holy or more sanctified day even than Passover, if that's imaginable. Not to say one is less, but this is the final thing. This is the one where you're standing there ready to marry. Passover begins the process, and food can even be prepared the initial forgiveness, if you will. This is the final forgiveness. When we fast, we humble ourselves completely, and then we stand ready to accept marriage to Christ himself. That has got to be the peak of forgiveness and mercy and washing away so that we stand there absolutely perfectly white and clean before the Father and the Son. Then the marriage proceeds. And we will never sin after that, because he says we're changed at the trumpets in a moment and the twinkling of an eye, and are no more corruptible. So you have that final then ceremony removing all sin and becoming at one. Atonement pictures, if you will, the consummation of the marriage, where they become totally at one. 
Now there's a reason that when atonement came after Sinai, he said, of the day of atonement, come not at your wives. It is the only day of the year when the intimate relationship between a husband and wife is forbidden. Why? Sabbath, it's okay. Day of Atonement, no. Because Day of Atonement to us pictures a time when the bridegroom is not here. We are longing for him. We would want to be with him, but he's gone. Not there. So the symbolism is, don't come at your wives because your bridegroom is not there. It's typology, but it is very meaningful, and it has an effect upon our lives. It's the day of the consummation of the relationship between Christ and his church. And therefore, on that day, God reserves that symbolism for the day when we actually do marry Christ. I never really understood that before, but when you understand that the Day of Atonement pictures the marriage itself, then that makes it a special day even in that way. So there's a reason for all those things God put back there. Sometimes it takes us a long time to figure out what the real reason was. We honor it, we do it, because that's what God says. But later on, we begin to understand, wow, that's what that means. Incredible. Let's go on down to Luke 5 now. Luke chapter 5. Let's see, where do I want to go here? Probably about verse 33. Verse 32, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. So the disciples apparently were not doing much, if any, fasting when Christ was there teaching them. He was with them. But he said, I'm going away, and when I go away, they will fast. Why? It is a fast of wanting to be close to him, wanting to be with him, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in every way, desiring to be with the bridegroom who's off on a long journey. So you fast, you afflict yourself to put yourself in the position, hopefully, that when he comes back, he'll want you. That's the idea of fasting, to become close to him, to get rid of the pride and the vanity that he resists and hates, and be humble and meek, serving, loving, and giving, which he loves. That's what fasting is all about. 
Isaiah 58, where it says, Give your bread to the poor. Give what you have to others. See, the attitude of humility, giving, and serving. I'm looking for that attitude. And if you'll have that attitude, that attitude, then you will be the repairers of the breach between God and man. What an awesome calling that is. And what a mouthful Christ is saying in this one little parable. So, the fast represents a time when he is gone. Now remember Zechariah 7 or 8, whichever it is, 8 I think, where it talks about those four fasts of the months that we decided we should do because they represent the seeds that has come upon the church today and the fall and the destruction of the temple of God, which has happened to the church in our lifetime, the destruction and killing of the leader of the church, which I think you can tie together with Isaiah where it says there were thieves, now there are murderers in chapter 1. And I do believe that Herbert Armstrong was killed that night. The security guards and others who were around, so there was a terrible fight. And then he was dead. So when you combine that with Isaiah 1 and this, these fasts, where Gedaliah was killed, I think the picture is fairly clear that the leaders of the church, or the leader of the church, was destroyed that night. I think it's written in Scripture. I don't have to have somebody who is a fly on the wall necessarily to tell me that. But the Scriptures are here, and then you get reports that seem to confirm that. Yes, they're rumors, but Scripture is not rumor. So we do what? We fast and get close to God so that that breach that destroyed the church and the temple can be healed and fixed. That's why it's important to keep those fasts. It's the symbolism there. And what does he say? He says one day those fasts will be turned into feasts of joy. When all the destruction that was done is repaired, then instead of fasting, we'll feast. And yet Christ said here, we fast because he's not here. So when will those feasts fast be turned into feasts of joy? We'll quit fasting when the bridegroom comes. Then we will feast. Let's move on in the story here. Matthew 26. Uh, here's the Passover service. He says in verse 29, that's the only one verse I want to pick out of this, but I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he had been one who would drink wine. His disciples drank wine, and the Pharisees chided them over that. But at that Passover service, he said, I will not drink wine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Now, we take a little wine at Passover. He didn't forbid us to drink wine, but he said, I won't do it again until that time. Luke 22, let's tie together with this. Luke 22. 
Let's go down to about verse 30, I think it is. Or verse 29, I appoint to you a kingdom as my Father has appointed to me. So he says, I'm offering you the kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we will eat and we will drink, and he will drink wine with us in the kingdom. That is being established pretty clearly here. Now there's a curious scripture which to me over the years seemed strange. I think I did go through it here a little bit but I think it fits in this context. Christ came to this earth to live a perfect life, to set an example. While he was here, he raised the dead, healed the sick, performed all kinds of miracles. So it was always kind of curious to me in John 2 why his first miracle was turning water into wine. When you had all kinds of lepers around, you had people losing their children to death, to demonism, to all kinds of problems. Why would your first initial introductory miracle be making wine? It, it seems superfluous by comparison, or unimportant in a way. I think there is a very, very important and deep reason that it was done. It is above healing. It is above resurrection of the physical dead during this lifetime. The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Christ was there. And both Emmanuel was called and his disciples to the marriage. So he and his disciples were called to the marriage. Remember the king providing a marriage for his son? and inviting the guests or those to the wedding. Now Christ and his disciples, we are his disciples, his disciples are those called to marry him. So this marriage is a type and a symbol of the marriage of Christ and his disciples, the marriage of the Lamb. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Emmanuel said to him, they have no wine. This is a serious problem when you are picturing in this analogy the marriage of the Lamb because he's already said, I'm going to drink wine with you in my kingdom and not until the kingdom. And you will eat and drink there. And you'll make merry at the marriage of the Lamb. So they have no wine. Emmanuel said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you my hour is not yet come. What did he mean? His hour to begin his ministry? No, that hour had come. This was his first miracle, and he would go on from here to do more. This is more than that. This is looking forward to the marriage of the Lamb, which was way down the road. And that hour had not yet come. So he said, why are you bothering me about wine when it isn't time to drink it with my disciples in the marriage? His mother said to the servants, whatsoever he says to you, do it. So she brushed that aside 
and said, he can fix this, get ready. Now, he made a statement there, but you'll notice he went ahead and did what she asked. Because it is a symbol given then about what is going to transpire very shortly down the road now. There were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece, or about twenty gallons, or total, 120 gallons of water. Emmanuel said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. This is to be a real feast. Don't fill them half full. We're going to do this thing. It's got to be complete, total, the big picture, full. Isn't the marriage of the Lamb the full fill meant? of the whole purpose and plan of God. Fill it up. And he said to them, Draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. And they took it. Who is the governor of the wedding supper? Our Father in heaven. So the very first thing you do is honor the Father. Take it to the Father. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. He said, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, they've had enough wine that their senses are somewhat depleted, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine till now. So everything that comes before this is inferior, but this is the best. This is the fulfillment of everything. When his time truly has come to marry his bride and establish the kingdom of God, what more important moment can there be? This beginning of miracles did Emmanuel in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed in him, or on him. He manifested his glory there. His most glorious moment to come is when he stands with his bride to be married before the Father. So is this more important than healing physical people, resurrecting physical people, casting a demon out, now I begin to understand why making wine was his first miracle. Because it pictured something that was not at the beginning of his ministry, but at the fulfillment, the apex, the climax, if you will, of the whole thing. The consummation of the marriage of Christ and his bride. Gives me chills just to think that we are candidates to be there standing with him when he first again takes wine with his bride after having gone without since 3031 A.D. Let's go to Revelation 19.
Now, he's been talking here about the fall of Babylon, which is an end-time event when the United States is destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. Isn't talking about the great poor Catholic Church, as we've talked about in the past. The Catholic Church doesn't even fit Revelation 18, much less Jeremiah 50 and 51, but it does fit this modern nation of Israel ruled over by Babylon from Washington, D.C. So this is very much an end-time prophecy in, verse nine, in chapter 19. After these things, after the destruction, after the captivity of Israel, the tribulation, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to the eternal our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Most of his servants are here in this nation. It's where he called the most. And they said, Hallelujah, and her smoke rose up and never dissipated. So this is the context in which he's talking about the marriage of the Lamb. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. So the marriage of the Lamb is slated to be shortly after the destruction of the nations, the captivity of Babylon, the end, if you will, of the tribulation. It can't happen to then because the Saints aren't resurrected till the end of the tribulation, three and a half days after the two witnesses are killed. And they and the rest then rise to meet Christ in the air. So the context is the end here, and the marriage of the Lamb is ready at the time these events begin to draw to a close. And to her was granted, as I said the other day, allowed, made possible, that she should be arrayed in fine flint linen, clean and white, granted by forgiveness and the blood of Christ. That is the only thing that will allow us who have been besmirched and, besmirched and spotted of the world to become clean and pure and white before him. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he says to me, write, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Now, his disciples fasted often when he was gone, but he said they will eat when he returns and they will not fast. The marriage supper of the Lamb is where you eat the supper. Now, if he says the feast, the fast days of Zechariah will become feasts of joy, I submit there is a great possibility that the Day of Atonement will become the greatest feast of joy that has ever been. Because without him with us, we have fasted on that day. It is the greatest day of expectancy and pining and wanting to be with the bridegroom that is listed in the Bible. And when he comes, he said we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Did he not say, when I'm gone, you'll fast. When I come back, when they're with me, they'll eat. 
Now, is this good news? I believe the Day of Atonement is going to change. It will no longer be a fast day. It will be a feast day. In any case, it wouldn't matter to us since we're spirit and we don't have to eat or drink. It would not make us uncomfortable not to. But wine does cheer the heart of God and man, as Deuteronomy says. And God does eat. And Christ said he will eat and drink with us in the kingdom of God. So... In the kingdom of God, we can eat because we want to, not just because we have to. We won't have to, but we will because we want to. Now, where does this take place? Let's go to Revelation 4. I think this is important theologically to understand because the church did not get it in pre- previous times. Revelation 4, here he's talking about God's throne, introducing the context in chapter 2, of verse 2, a throne set in heaven, and then it describes him, and the throne in sight was likened to an emerald. I don't think it's any coincidence that up here in Zion, the West Temple has a projecting knob at the top, and it has a crown of emerald trees at the top. The throne was in sight like an emerald, and round about the throne the twenty-four elders with heads, uh, crowns, and so on, white raiment. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices and seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And if you go back to Revelation 1, you'll see those six spirits of God are the seven angels of the seven churches. So pictured here at the throne of God are seven angels representing the church. And before the throne, out in front, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. I won't read the rest of that. I wanted to establish here in chapter 4 but there's a sea of glass right there at the throne of God and of Christ. Now let's flip over to, uh, where is it? Chapter 15. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Remember that the tribulation is the wrath, essentially, of Satan upon the nations. But here we have the wrath of God filled up. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. We know what that is. We just read about it in chapter 4. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, Stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. How do they get there before the throne of God on the sea of glass? Let's go through this. 
When Christ returns, the last trump, the dead in Christ, and those who are alive and remain then, rise to meet him in the air. Where do they go? Do they come on down? That's what we always thought. No, they don't come on down. They go with him, and it is said that they are ever with him there in 1 Thessalonians 4 once they rise. Wherever he goes, they go from then on. Husband and wife are never parted again forevermore. They go to the sea of glass. They go to the throne of God in heaven. Whoever told you don't go to heaven, we're going. Not going to stay there. Not going to get pink wings and float around, but we're going there. We're going to stand on the sea of glass before the Father and the Son and be with him there. Now notice the timing of this. It's at the time of the seven last plagues and the wrath of God. Now, Christ is depicted as coming in two ways. First, to take his saints from the earth, take them to the sea of glass, where the Day of Atonement is the next event, where they marry the Lamb. Now let's notice quickly in Deuteronomy 24, a principle of the Old Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His thinking does not change. That which he has done in the past always has a type and a symbol for the future. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business or work, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he has taken. God wrote that for mankind, but he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if his thinking ever was that a man ought to have a year with his wife, they're both kind of worthless anyway for the first year, while they get acquainted, God proclaims that. Now, Christ himself and the Father will honor that. Now, there are many scriptures about the day of the Lord, when the heavens are dark and cloudy and thunder and lightning and destruction and terrible things happening on the earth. Tie in Matthew 24 with this. Matthew 24. Now, he's talking here about the gospel being preached, the abomination, the going to a place of safety, which Revelation 12 clearly shows is three and a half years, 1260 days, or 42 months, all three. Then he's going to come as the lightning, verse 26. Behold, they'll say he's in the desert, don't go. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines to the west, so shall also the coming of the sand son of man be, for whatsoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now, we know that he returns for his bride when? Right after the tribulation. 
the two witnesses are killed three and a half days before the 1260 days ends, right? So they're resurrected three and a half days later at the last trump and Christ returns as the lightning shining from east to west. That's at the precise end of the tribulation. Now what does this go on to say? It shows events that happen immediately after the tribulation. Verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and they'll mourn, and so on. His elect are gathered. But this appears the day of the Lord, the darkening that Joel and Zephaniah and others mentioned begins immediately after the tribulation. That is the time that the seven last plagues are sent. Now Christ did not come to gather his elect and to make war at that time he couldn't have because of Deuteronomy 24. From the time he takes his bride from the earth, takes her to the sea of glass, and marries her on the day of atonement, there is then a year's honeymoon when the seven last plagues are going across the earth. The days of darkness and gloominess and him not being here. Notice the contrast of when he comes back. Um... Where is that one I'm looking for? Revelation, did I, I should have written it down. 21, I guess, is where I'm trying to find. No, it's not. Comes down uh, on a white horse with the blood. Somewhere in here. I want to read this. Somebody finds it, holler. Huh? Is it 19? Yeah, yeah, there it is. I, yeah, I guess I did have it written. I thought I'd already been here. I had, but this is something, another point. It says the marriage supper was called in verse 9. I fell at his feet, verse 10, to worship him. And he said to me, See you do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the testimony of, of uh, Emmanuel. Worship God, for the testimony of Emmanuel is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened. Now they've been called into the marriage supper, right? Just above this. Now it says the heavens were opened. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called, called faithful and true. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. When he appears on the white horse, it's to make war. There's nothing that says he makes war when he comes after the saints. He takes them to the throne. He marries them. There is a year's honeymoon in which they get acquainted better. They learn their duties as a wife and ultimately mother for God's children. A time is needed for that. Then, well, let me back up. He cannot make war or do business as such during that time. 
He's there to cheer up his wife, as Deuteronomy 24 says. At the end of that year, while the seven last plagues have been raging upon the earth and great destruction, he will return. Now notice how he comes this time. In righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John 1 tells us that, it, that that is speaking of Christ himself. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, who do you suppose that is? He's doing the war and the fighting. She is riding behind on white horses in fine linen, white and pure. She's still white and pure a year later, married to Christ. No sin. Remember? We will ever be with the Lord. He goes back to his father's throne after he collects his bride, goes to his father's house where are many mansions. He's prepared a place for her. He marries her there, and then he brings her home. Her home is going to be the earth, Revelation 5.10. We shall reign on the earth. We'll honeymoon in heaven. How do we do it? You don't live in Hawaii or the Caribbean, you honeymoon there, and then you come back home in everyday life to become a wife and mother and all the responsibilities that are entailed in that. So he comes differently this time. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and his name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or Lords. If you go on down, it talks about how there's a great slaughter. That's why his vesture is dipped in blood. Then it says that Satan is bound. There, there you come to the meaning of atonement. Remember Leviticus 16, where the Azazel was bound into the hand of the fit men and taken out into the wilderness. The same is true here. The millennium is about to begin. The seven last plagues have occurred. Christ and his bride are coming back to rule the earth in righteousness. So Satan has to be bound. Remember what I was saying the other day about Satan being the old boyfriend or the old husband and the analogy because his he... He whom you obey is, in that sense, your husband or boyfriend. <coughs> She's here to marry Christ. <coughs> in memories of old boyfriends, girlfriends among human beings can be a real sore spot in a marriage. Distrust, insecurity, all kinds of bad emotions come out of past sins, fornications, and adulteries that may have occurred in the past. They are a problem in marriages. So, this old boyfriend is going to be bound, taken away into the wilderness, and dwell solitary, 
And that is pictured on the Day of Atonement. When the marriage is consummated, he is taken away, never to return. The former things will pass away and not be remembered. We will have the capacity, as will Christ, to completely forget our old boyfriends. This world, it will pass away. A new world will begin. It'll be totally different. No remembrance of the past. A new world. If you can believe it, a new world order. Satan and his demons and their servants, puppets on this earth, think they are going to establish a new world order and a kingdom that will rule a thousand years in peace. Satan has counterfeited everything that God ever planned. But he will be proved to be a false god, a counterfeiter, not a true husband and he will be taken away forevermore. What a time to look forward to. Chapter 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. There are explanations for that. Salt is taken out, the water is made fresh, according to Ezekiel. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. She'll have her white garments, fine linen, pure and clean. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will live with men. His home will be here. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. That's immortality, right? Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. All the suffering, the troubles, the neglect, the tears, the discouragements that we have had, will pass away, never to be remembered. To live in absolute wedded bliss from then and forevermore. We will fulfill with Christ the dreams of every human bride and groom who ever married with dreams of blissful happiness living happily forever after. It's written about in novels. It's portrayed on the screens. That is the dream of human beings, to live happily ever after. And in human experience, happily ever after lasts anywhere from one second after the marriage to a month or a year or two or three or five or ten or whatever it is when the first trouble comes. It's usually sooner than later. Some people fight through the whole honeymoon. Some people are fairly matched and their troubles come later. But we don't live totally, blissfully happy ever after. Even the best of marriages have their downtime. They have their troubles. They have their attitudes. They have their displeasure one with the other. They have their moods. They have their problems. 
Our greatest dreams are going to be fulfilled at the time of the Day of Atonement, when we marry Christ and live happily ever after on the Feast of Atonement, if you will.